0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the the book of Romans, it's chapter 16 in the, the entire chapter. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Saint Criere. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend, (laughs) (laughs) Stachus. Greet Apellus Tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Anse- Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Phylogius, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius... Whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you this greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Great job. I meant to, to warn him ahead of time of what was coming, but he did great. Unbelievable. Now, I'm telling you, there are some sick names in that list, right? Stacus? come on, church, we got got some, anybody having babies, you got to start, you got to look at these names. There's a wealth of untapped Bible names here in this passage. So anyway, thank you, Ray. Jacob Collier was 22 years old when he released his debut album called In My Room. And what's remarkable about this album and about Jacob Collier in particular, is that this album won two Grammys. It was his his first album he'd ever released. He was 22 years old. He wins two Grammys. But what's even more impressive about this album in my room is that he recorded the entire album in his room, in his room at his house, in his own private studio. I think it was a room in his parents' house, I think. And he played every instrument on it. He sang every vocal on it. He mixed. He did everything for this album. This guy is just one of these freaky, genius musicians. And so if you come by my house on any given day, you might hear the sound of Jacob Collier playing throughout my house. Now, he's not the only one we listen to. We listen to a lot of other different artists, different styles of music as well. And we don't just listen to music all the time either. So if you were walking by our house, there are many different sounds that you might hear if you walked by our house on any given day. You might, for example, hear the heavy breathing of Darth Vader and the clash of lightsabers as my son and I chase each other around the house pretending we're on the Death Star. You might hear the sound of the piano. You might hear the the, the right hand first, and then the left hand by itself, and then the right and left hands put together slowly with the metronome. You might hear that in our house. You might hear the sound of the Nutri-Ninja, our blender. This blender is... Unbelievable, it can slice and dice anything that you put in it, and it lets the entire neighborhood know that it's slicing and dicing. And so, when the Nutra Ninja is on, uh, another sound that you'll hear just moments before the Nutra Ninja is about to go on is you'll hear my children running, screaming, and covering their ears to get as far away from the Nutra Ninja as they possibly can before it goes into action. These are just many of the sounds you might hear if you come by my house. You might hear the sound of plastic smashing against other pieces of plastic, and that's me frustratingly trying to get the Tupperware containers to go in the cabinet where they belong. You might hear the sound of the dishwasher. You might hear the sound of the washing machine. You might hear the sound of the doorbell when the UPS truck comes and delivers packages constantly to our doorstep that are intended for the church but show up at our door. Anyways, there are so many sounds that you might hear if you come to our house at any given moment. Today we are finishing up our series on the book of Romans. Next week we're going to launch into a new series. A series that is coinciding with the season of Lent. It's a season called Thirsty. And this series we're going to be going into is, is based on or at least is inspired by John chapter 4 where Jesus has an encounter with a woman at a well, they're at the well, this is kind of like going to the grocery store a little bit, uh, and they're, they're at the well, drawing water, and they have this encounter, and Jesus uses it as a teaching moment, and the principle that emerges from this, which will be unpacked throughout the six weeks of this series, is that we go through life trying to quench our spiritual thirst with wells that cannot quench our thirst. We have so many wells which we go to and we try to quench our spiritual thirst with the water of these wells. And what Jesus says in that passage is these wells will not satisfy you. The only thing that will satisfy you is if you come to me, he says. And so it's going to be an invitation for us to identify those wells in our lives that we are looking to to fill ourselves spiritually and to turn from them. To the only one who truly can satisfy. That's gonna start next week. In conjunction with that, there will be a weekly devotional. We did this last season as well. I'll put out a weekly devotional that will be available for you on the Sunday that you come in uh, for the message. And I would encourage you to consider doing that with your family, with your household during that season. It'll be it'll be brief, but I think it'll be it could be something that would be very encouraging for you. So that starts next week. But today we are finishing up this series on the book of Romans, and we have been in this thing for like nine months, and this is it. We're finally done. Uh, I went ahead and had uh, Ray read the whole thing, because I'm like, we've read everything else. We might as well read the whole thing, and so we're finishing that today, and of course, as we've seen throughout this series, the central theme of the book of Romans and the central theme of this entire series has been that there is good news. There is good news that trumps all bad news. That no matter what bad news any one of us might encounter at any given time in our lives, there is good news that trumps it. There is good news that is bigger than it. There is good news that is richer and fuller and ultimately can see us through whatever bad news it is that we come across. And what we've looked at in the last couple of weeks then is this question of, well, how do we respond? Like, what, what would happen What happens when the gospel begins to take a hold of our hearts? How do we respond? How would we respond? And in the chapters leading up to this, we see Paul getting rather practical in some ways. He unpacks some ways in which we would respond uh, to the gospel when it begins to take root in us. Today I want to highlight as we come to the end here something that he says in the end which I think takes us back up to about 30,000 feet. And it addresses again this question of how, how would we respond? How ought we to respond? What would it look like if the gospel were to take root of our hearts? And I I think pretty much this is what we discover here. When the gospel takes root in our hearts, we we become completely and totally preoccupied with it. We become completely and totally preoccupied by the beauty of the gospel the beauty of the good news. We begin to see everything in life in light of the good news. We are completely and totally preoccupied by it. And, of course, we've we've seen this. We saw last week in chapter 15 that Paul himself is completely and utterly preoccupied with the gospel, that the gospel drives and dictates everything that he does. He's completely preoccupied. With the gospel. And what I would say is that to be completely preoccupied with the gospel is what it means to give glory to God. We see here how does Paul end this letter? He ends it with a really, really long sentence, which is pretty typical for Paul. He loves run on sentences. Beginning in verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. What does it mean to give glory to God? And I would suggest that at the very heart of it, it's to be completely and totally preoccupied with the gospel and the God of the gospel. Think about this. When we think about the word glory, really, when somebody receives glory, what's going on in that moment is that everybody's preoccupied with them. For someone to receive glory, they receive all of the attention, right? So, so, Olympic athletes, they train for their entire lives and then they have their moment of glory, right? It's that moment of glory. It's that moment when all of a sudden the entire world is preoccupied with ping pong. Okay, maybe not. they don't get that preoccupied ping pong. But snowboarding, snowboarding, everybody, Sean White, we love Sean White, we love Sean White. We only think about Sean White for you know, every fourth year. We get preoccupied. This is their moment of glory. And when the world turns and sees them, and, and we all know that, right? We, you know, people during the Olympics, all of a sudden, they get really preoccupied with it. And that, for those Olympians, is their moment of glory because everybody is preoccupied with them. To receive glory is to have people completely preoccupied. with you. There's, there's a comparative element here to it. So in other words... Um, to give glory to someone, to be preoccupied with them, is to not be preoccupied with something else or someone else. It's to not give glory to someone else. There's this comparative element to it. Forgive me for this analogy, but after the Super Bowl this year, I happened to notice that the, the Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots, their players, they were showing up on all of these TV shows. Like They showed up on the Grammys. A couple of the players for the Patriots actually introduced one of the awards, For the Grammys. Uh, They showed up, players showed up on Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, on Ellen's show. I mean, they're just showing up on all of these shows. They are in the limelight. Everybody's attention is on them. And guess who was not on those shows? The players for the LA Rams. You didn't see them giving out awards at the Grammys, you didn't see them on Jimmy Fallon. Why? Because their glory had been stolen and the glory that was now on the Patriots, everybody's preoccupied with them. The attention is on them. There's this comparative element to it that when we give glory to someone, we are moving our attention from something else to that which we are giving glory to. And we actually find this notion of uh, comparison, uh, stealing glory, in the very first place in the Bible where it even mentions the word glory. In the book of Exodus, chapter 14, this is the first time in the Bible where we come across this word glory. The Hebrew word is kabod, and it doesn't occur until this passage in Exodus, chapter 14. And the context here in Exodus, chapter 14, is the people of Israel have been in slavery and captivity for 400 years in Egypt. God has led them out of Egypt. They are running away from the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, running away from Pharaoh, running away from Egypt. And this is the moment when they're up against the sea, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming after them. And listen what it says here, chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back And encamp near Pi-Hahareth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the desert in confusion, hemmed in by the the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is the first place where the word glory appears in the Bible, and it's what he's getting at here is, it's interesting, the first time we see glory, him talking about glory to God, it's, it's, it's actually not the Israelites, it's the Egyptians he's saying, they will know that I am Lord. In other words, they will know that I am Lord, not Pharaoh. I am the one who deserves the attention and the glory. So we see in this that the very nature of glory is that you are preoccupied with something and you are now not preoccupied with something else. To give you just kind of uh, an example in my own life, and uh, some people will think this is cheap, that I'm just using this as an attempt to score points with my wife. But this is true. This is true. Um, when... Laura walked into my life. She stole the glory from every other woman in the world. She stole the glory. In other words, I became completely preoccupied with her. Prior to that, I was preoccupied with a number of different women, you know, here and there, interested here and there. But when Laura came along, she stole their glory, and I became preoccupied with her. I remember going to social gatherings where I'm talking to people, and I really don't want to talk to them. I'm just trying to find a way to work myself over to the other side of the room where the glory of Laura is radiating. I was completely and utterly preoccupied with her. So here's what we need to understand, folks. Anything that grabs your attention, anything with which you are preoccupied, that is something you are giving glory to. Whatever you are preoccupied with, that is what you are giving glory to. And we can be preoccupied with all kinds of things, can't we? All kinds of things. We can be preoccupied with things like our fear and our worry and our anxiety. How many of you find this? You find yourself, you you can't sleep at night. You find yourself maybe suffering from health issues because of your worry and your anxiety. We need to realize when you're preoccupied with your worries and your anxieties, what's happening is you're giving glory to your fears and to your worries and to your anxieties. What about anger and resentment? Sometimes we give glory to our anger and our bitterness and our resentment. We hold on to our anger and our bitterness and our resentment. We are preoccupied with it. And in doing so, we are giving glory to it, that, that when we're preoccupied with our anger and our resentment, if you can imagine that your te- your head is a television, then inside your television, anger and resentment, they're the ones presenting awards at the Grammys. Anger and resentment, they are the ones that are showing up on Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kellen and Ellen's TV shows They are the ones who are receiving the attention and the glory. Your anger and your resentment are being glorified because you are preoccupied with them. We can be preoccupied with all kinds of things. We can be preoccupied with with our coming vacation that's coming up. We can be preoccupied with uh, things at work. We can be preoccupied with food. Ever found that? You just can't stop thinking about getting home and there's that chocolate cake sitting on your counter. You can't wait to get home. Get preoccupied with food, with alcohol, with television. We can get preoccupied with all of these different things. And when we're preoccupied, what we're doing is we're giving glory to those things. We are singing their praises. We are lifting them up. We are saying, show me your glory. When we are preoccupied with something, that's what it means to give glory to it. And so to give glory to God. As Paul ends this letter, it means to be completely preoccupied with him. Completely preoccupied with God is what it means to give glory to him. It's to be preoccupied with his presence and to be preoccupied with what he has done. And we find this, again, going back into the Old Testament narrative, in the Exodus narrative where we first come across this word glory. We see that, that this glory is to be preoccupied with God's presence, and to be preoccupied with what he has done. Again, in the, in the first instance in which the word glory appears, it's being preoccupied with what he has done. And at first, God is looking for the Egyptians to be preoccupied with what he has done. And then right in that chapter afterwards, after God delivers them from the Egyptians, we find the Israelites singing a song in which they celebrate the glory of God. They are preoccupied with what God has done, how God has rescued them and delivered them. So that's one thing is to be preoccupied with what God has done, but then we also see that to to give glory to God is to be preoccupied with his presence. Because then later on in the same narrative we see that the word glory is used to refer to his presence itself. The glory of God, the spirit of God, the cloud that comes upon the tabernacle is referred to as the glory, the presence of God, So to give glory to God is to be preoccupied with God's presence. And we see in the book of Exodus, if you ever wonder, you're like, why is it like chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter with just describing the, the tiniest details of how to build the tabernacle? Why all these details, chapter after chapter after chapter? It's to show us that they are to be completely preoccupied with the presence of of God. So to give glory to God is to be preoccupied with his presence, to be preoccupied with what he's done. And and Paul says here returning to our passage, right? He says he says to give glory to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ give glory to God. And what that's saying is now in light of the gospel, then we we sort of reinterpret those two dimensions what he has done and his presence and so for the ancient israelites when they would give glory to god praising for what he has done they celebrated and they were preoccupied with his rescuing them from slavery in egypt in light of the gospel we glory in god we are preoccupied with the fact that on the cross jesus died to forgive us of our sin he died to enter into our world of pain and suffering, to enter into it with us and through his resurrection to completely rescue us from us and give us the hope of eternal life both now and in eternity. That's what we become preoccupied with. We become preoccupied with what Christ has done on the cross. We become preoccupied with his presence. The scripture goes on and instead of the glory of God coming and filling the temple, the tabernacle, now the Spirit comes, comes and fills the hearts of each and every one who put their faith in Him. To give glory to God is to be completely preoccupied with what He has done and to be preoccupied with His presence. In other words, what this means is then again, if, if your head is a television, It means that at the Grammys, Jesus is the one giving out the awards. Jesus is the one showing up on Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel. That would be fun to see. I would love to see that. Jesus is the one with whom we are entirely preoccupied. Now, to be preoccupied with Jesus, to be preoccupied with the good news, it doesn't mean simply that we are thinking entirely about him, that we are simply seeing him. What it also means to be preoccupied with Him is to see everything in light of Him. So Here's what I mean. When we look, again, going back to the Exodus narrative, what we discover is that the glory of God, the presence of God, is actually something that is also used to guide them, to light their way. So, in other words, it's not just a matter of looking at and reflecting on the glory of God. In fact, for the people in the Old Testament, that was almost a dangerous thing to do. For them, it was more that the glory of God showed them where to go. It lit up everything else. So to be preoccupied with the gospel is to see everything in light of the gospel. C.S. Lewis uh, says something that in a slightly different context, but I think we can see how it applies here as well. He's famously said this. He says, I believe in Christianity." as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the, the sun. The sun rises in the morning. How do you know that the sun has risen is what he's getting. How do you know that the sun has risen? Do you have to go out there and look for it? No, you can see that the sun has risen because you see everything with it. And so in a similar sense here, to give glory to the gospel, give glory to God, to be preoccupied with Him, isn't simply to be focused and preoccupied with the gospel itself, but to see everything in light of the gospel. That the gospel becomes the, the very light that we, we see. Let, let me kind of put it a, a different way here. One of the great, I think, advantages of postmodernity, one of the great contributions that postmodernity has brought to our age, especially in a philosophical sense, is that postmodernity has actually helped us to realize that there's no such thing as an objective perspective. There's no neutral perspective from which you can see things, right? You see things in a particular light, you see everything in a particular light. Uh, not all that different, I mean, that, that's a metaphor because. You know, if you use different light, you see things differently, right? If you, if you use blue light, you see things differently. If you use red light, you see things differently, and sometimes different light screens out different things. You see things very differently, depending on what kind of light is being shown on it. And in the in same sense, our perspective on reality is shaped by what light, what light we use to, to see that. And what happens, so let me just kind of unpack just briefly here, what happens when you see the world in light of the gospel? And here's one of the things that happens. When you see the world in light of the gospel, sin and selfishness no longer looks appealing. You see, selfishness, which is really the heart of sin, people, you know, sin is kind of a, it's become kind of a churchy word. People don't know what to do with the word sin. Well, at the heart, at the root of sin, for the most part, it's just selfishness. And in light of the gospel, when you see things in light of the gospel, here's what begins to happen. Selfishness doesn't look as appealing anymore. It's a little bit like, I mean, if you have ever been to a restaurant where, I don't know if this is a good example, where the lighting is bad? The lighting is bad, and so the food just kind of looks disgusting, Right? It, 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 even if it's, you know, something that would normally you would think would taste, it just kind of looks weird, what the gospel does is it gives you a perspective, and it's actually a more true perspective. It's a perspective that helps you to see that sin doesn't even look appealing. Right? The, the Christian life, we, we talk about, you know, you become a Christian, and you gotta, you know, you've gotta, uh, you got to overcome sin, right? You've got to muster up the strength to overcome sin. And there's an element of truth to that. But the reality is that the more the gospel penetrates your heart, sin doesn't even look appealing to you anymore. Because it's the light through which you see everything. We see this link between the glory of God, being preoccupied with God, and obedience. We see this here. In the last again in the last verse, if I can find it here, this run-on sentence that Paul gives us at the end of the letter. He says, In light of the gospel, and in, in verse twenty-five He says, uh, well, I'll just read the whole thing because you can't, it's this really long sentence. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him to the only wise God be glory forever. And we see here the connection between giving glory to God and obedience, and that is that when you are preoccupied with God and you begin to see things in his light, obedience looks like the right way to go. And when you don't see it in the light of the gospel, then obedience doesn't look like the right way to go. So to be preoccupied with God, to give glory to God is to see everything in light of the gospel. And, and we, see this, you see, we see this happening in the way Paul approaches everything that he does. Uh, it, what, just one example that pops up in this passage of how Paul is seeing everything in light of the gospel, okay, is the way in which we see him encouraging the members of the Roman church. I don't know if you noticed this when, when Ray was doing a bang-up job listing off all these names. You notice that he he sneaks in there these these words of encouragement. Uh, what, what's happening here is, is Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's trying, he's greeting people that are there. Now, what he happens to know is that this letter is going to be read out loud. Everybody's going to read this. Everybody's going to hear this. And so he says things about these people on one end to to so that others will know what he thinks of them, but so that they will know, and so that they can be encouraged. And we see just all over the place he just drops in ways to encourage them. Uh, verse, verse 6, meet, uh, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Verse 7, greet Adronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. <clears throat> they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stackus. Love that one. Had to read that one. My dear friend, right? Calls him, my dear friend, Stachis, greet Apellus, tested and approved in Christ. Paul finds these ways to say encouraging things about them. You see, when, when the gospel begins to take root in our hearts and we see things in the light of the gospel, we start becoming more encouraging because we begin to see people as God sees them. We begin to see them, despite their faults, as individuals that God loves and God died for. And so we find ways to lift them up and to encourage them. That's just one of the ways in which seeing the world in light of the gospel affects everything that Paul does. And he warns the church, he warns them against how Being distracted from the gospel can lead to division. We see this here, verse 7. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. And if we've gone through the book of Romans and we realize what he's talking about when he says the teaching you have learned, he says when people put obstacles in your way that prevent you from seeing the gospel, to prevent you from seeing the good news of what has happened in Jesus. When those obstacles come up, this causes division. He wants us to see that when we are preoccupied with something other than the gospel itself, this leads to division. This can happen in the church. This can happen when when in the church we get divided on what methods to use in ministry, what programs to run. Everybody can have lots of different opinions, uh, and but if we are if we are not preoccupied with the gospel, we'll get caught up in all of these side issues. And and what we're getting at here is that there will always be conflict in the church, but it won't lead to division if we're preoccupied with the gospel. Because whatever those issues are will never seem as important in the big picture in light of the gospel. He says when when we're no longer preoccupied with the gospel, then we begin to get preoccupied with our own little agendas and our own, our own little perspectives on how ministry should be done or how this should be done. It says, and then that leads to division. But when you're preoccupied with the gospel, now there's unity. Another way of, of, of seeing this is that when we're preoccupied with the gospel, it creates an atmosphere of grace. When we're preoccupied with, preoccupied with the good news, it, it creates this atmosphere of grace. We become a community where we don't hold grudges, right? If, if somebody wrongs us or we feel wrong, we, we don't hold on to that. We present it to the cross we see the forgiveness that God gives to us. We, res- we reflect on our own sin and we realize that God has forgiven us. How can we not forgive others? We just begin to show compassion on others and bear their, their burdens with them, bear their offenses. We show them grace. We don't hold on to things. And so, again, there's conflict. There's always going to be conflict. But because there's this atmosphere of grace, it doesn't lead to to division. We're able to see things from different perspectives, right? We're able to see things from different perspectives uh, because those issues aren't what's central to us anymore. You see, when the gospel is what's central, it it allows you to have the flexibility to see other people's perspectives. Let me give you an, an example, honestly, where I see division in the church, and I mean the church, the big church, not just like our little church necessarily here, but the church in general is I would say that our church is divided in many respects over politics because many people are completely preoccupied with their particular political view. It's interesting to me. I see there's almost two perspectives. People are either totally preoccupied with politics or they're so disgusted by the people that are preoccupied with it, they're completely apathetic about it. But in the church, I see people who are completely preoccupied. I mean, it's all they post on Facebook is their political views. And they're so sold on theirs being the right perspective that there's no possibility for any kind of dialogue. And what's actually going on there is that in some respects, it's almost like they're more preoccupied with their politics than they are with the gospel. It's almost like they see the world through their political lens rather than seeing the world through the gospel, it's almost like they see the gospel through the lens of their politics rather than looking at their politics through the lens of the gospel. So this causes division. There is division in the American church over this, which is very serious in the big picture. And what's going to bring unity is when we once again become preoccupied with the gospel itself and begin to see our political views in that light. And in that light, we'll begin to see, you know what, there may be some, some areas where I could see things differently. I understand why they see it from their perspective. I get their perspective now. Paul says that it's through the gospel. He's, he's, he's warning them against, he's warning them against anything that will pull them away from the gospel because he knows that it's going to bring division. So in summary... How do we give glory to God? We give glory to God by being completely and totally preoccupied with Him, with His presence and what He has done. Now, how do we become people who are preoccupied with the gospel? And here's what I think we need to do. We need to turn down the other sound. Sometimes at three in the morning, I'll be lying in bed, and I get completely and totally preoccupied with the sound of our ceiling fan. At three in the morning, I can't, like, I can't focus on anything other than the sound of that ceiling fan. Now here's what's interesting is during the day we we'll, we we'll often forget to turn it off and I don't notice the ceiling fan at all. You know why? Because in our house as I said at the beginning of this message there's so many sounds. There's the dishwasher, there's the washing machine, there's Darth Vader and there's lightsabers and there's piano and there's the stereo booming and, and there's the doorbell and you don't hear the fan at all. So I'm not preoccupied In the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah stands on Mount Horeb, which most scholars agree is the same mountain where Moses received the law. Of course, when Moses received the law, it was this big, loud, fiery experience. But when Elijah is standing in the same place, he is waiting for the presence of God. He's waiting for the glory of God. And what it says in that passage is that a mighty wind comes, but God was not in the wind. And then a powerful earthquake came. It's hard to be preoccupied with anything else when there's an earthquake, right? But he wasn't in the earthquake. And then a fire came, and he wasn't. And then after all of this, he came in a still, small voice. Friends, there are many messages that emerge from that passage, but one of the messages that emerges is that that is primarily how God reveals himself to us, day in and day out. And if we're going to become preoccupied with him, we have to turn down Friends, we're about to enter into the season of Lent. And Lent traditionally has been a season in the history of the church where we look at our own lives and we look at the noise. We look at the things that we are preoccupied with, that our hearts are preoccupied with. And we say during this season, I'm going to dial these things down. I'm going to dial these down so that I can begin to really hear from the Lord and be preoccupied with Him. Friends, as we move into this Lent season, I want to you, encourage you just to be thinking right now, what, what are those things in your life that you are so preoccupied with? What are those things that, that dominate your attention, dominate your affections, I would encourage you to find ways to dial those down. Maybe for you, it's work. You're just totally consumed with work. Maybe in this season, you can actually find a way to dial down whatever it is that you're doing in work, however you can do that. Dial that down. Maybe for you, the truth of the matter is is that you just keep yourself so entertained, so entertained and, and, and so busy with, with activities and entertainment and all of this, that you're just so preoccupied that, that, that hearing God would be a little bit like trying to hear that ceiling fan in my house during the middle of the day. And the only way you're going to hear it is if you dial those things down. So my challenge for you this season is, I did, what are those things in your life? How can you dial them down so that you will become able to hear from God? Become preoccupied with him and give him glory. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning. Lord, humbled that you are a God who is so patient with us. You love us. You desire to be in relationship with us. Despite the fact that we so easily turn to other things, often good things, that become ultimate things, things that we become so preoccupied with, the Lord, we no longer hear you, but you wait for us. You're patient. God, we thank you for that, and we pray that in this season, God, we might see the the foolishness the foolishness of turning to anything other than you to find our deepest joy and satisfaction. God, I pray that you alone, you would give us the strength to dial back those things that perhaps we've almost become addicted to. God, I pray that you would help us to dial those back that we might be able to hear from you and begin to connect with that which really can give us life. I pray this in Jesus' name.